Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson. Columnist editorial board member Kerry Clack. And uh, we've got a special guest today. We've got uh, Scott Huddleston, who does a great job of covering county government for us. Uh, and a few months ago, we had Scott on to talk about uh, a rift over a rescue boat. I, Scott, I think at the time you just you described it as the most discussed boat in the history of San Antonio. <laughs> and this was a rescue boat that Sheriff Javier Salazar uh, wanted. Uh, and he was finding outside funding for it, but he this was something that upset County Commissioner Krista Berry right. um, because yeah. she, he was going outside the, the commissioner's court. There's there's kind of a new uh, source of disagreement between the two of them uh, that you covered last week. What, what's happening? Right. Yeah, well, um, thank you for the introduction, Gilbert. Uh, you, you do recall the the controversy over the boat, which uh, started in April and just kind of snowballed over the summer. But um, that's still going on. And the sheriff is still going to come back probably uh, with a request for the boat um, at some point. But um, the latest thing, the the rift between Commissioner Trish DeBerry and Sheriff Javier Salazar is uh, the du- what I call the dueling consultants on the jail, because um, the sheriff had apparently committed to, you know, working with the commissioners, commissioners court to decide um, collectively with the court and with county staff who would be the best person to conduct uh, a study on the jail and, you know, rec- recommend solutions to some of the problems that they've been having with staff over time and and crowding and those kinds of things. Um, and so. Um, it, it seemed like they were all on the same page working together on that. But then um, the sheriff about two weeks ago uh, called an impromptu virtual uh, uh, news conference and announced that he was going to hire uh, a consultant out of Belton, Texas called the Tank Inc. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a surprise to, to, uh, Commissioner DeBerry. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I began reporting on that online um, as soon as soon as he announced it. And um, I didn't even have to reach out to her or to the deputies union to get feedback. They, they both um, provided some blowback to that announcement. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the deputies union felt that it was not the optics of it just wasn't right with the sheriff, you know, basically choosing his own consultant. Sure. And, um, 
Commissioner DeBerry is basically saying the same thing. And and so um, uh, they were um, commissioner's court was tomorrow expected to consider hiring its own consultant, which is um, American American Correctional Consultants out of uh, Southern Florida. And um, they were going to do that tomorrow, this week. But um, she moved it up a week um, because apparently she's in a hurry now to to get their <laughs> consultant hired. So you've got, you know, the sheriff's uh, consultant who's been retained, um, not using, he says, not using taxpayer funds, but using the uh, asset seizure forfeiture funds, mm-hmm. I think $50,000. And um, the commissioners have um, allocated uh, right around 20,000 for the consultant from Florida. Um, and so that's where we're at. We have two different consultants on the jail. Um, in the overall scheme of things, maybe that's a good thing that there's another consultant that the sheriff did not choose just for the sake of optics. But, um, you know, the, there's been some testy and spicy exchanges between the commissioner and the sheriff, and that just continues. It really seems like Commissioner DeBerry and uh, Sheriff Salazar just did not hit it off right off the bat. It seems like. <laughs> so right. how much I mean, how much of this is just kind of like bad interpersonal relations? Is there uh, any partisanship involved? I mean, he's the only uh, commissioner who is a Republican. He's obviously a Democrat. Is that part of what's right. creating this friction? Well, you could you could try to break it down and look at it as partisan politics. Um, it's you could say that maybe there's a factor of covid fatigue um, and and also, um, you know, getting on a personal level, um, you know, these leaders are, are human beings and the, um, both the sheriff and Commissioner DeBerry have lost their mothers recently and they're um, still in some process of grieving, I would imagine. But um, it could be that um their their personalities are so similar. They're two alpha politicians, and they're both very you know high functioning professionals. You know the the sheriff is very high energy, and he you know explains things explicitly, and you know dots dots every i and and crosses every t. And um, Commissioner DeBerry, I've seen her carry on two conversations simultaneously in in a social situation so i mean there it could be that they're just they're they're the two alphas in the room you know <laughs> that that could lend to clashing mm-hmm. scott great reporting and also in that i want to kind of uh well greg kind of asked the question that i was going to ask too just wondering what was the source of this conflict but i, I thought your answer was well including the fact that both of them have recently lost them their mothers but uh, where does this go? When when are we expected to uh, to get both of these reports? And and what's the best out, outcome, possible outcome with, with yeah. these reports? Uh, it's 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 hard to predict what's going to happen. But um, I do believe that the sheriff expects his his consultant, Detain Inc to uh, come up with some kind of work product in the next couple of months, probably in the form of a draft, uh, a draft uh, report um, that will be tweaked. Um, I know that the commissioners had wanted to see if if that uh, consultant would work with their consultant. And, you know, I, I'm not sure um, maybe you guys have some feelings about this, but is, is that really the best course if they're trying to be independent of each other and if they're trying to have um, a consultant has the success. Um, but I, I think that um, 
hopefully they'll have some constructive uh, ideas. Um, one of the things that might be a looming possibility, though, is we may have to deal with the issue of do we need a new jail? Mm-hmm. And um, that was, uh, I think it's an, a 1987 structure, but they, they completed the what they call the South Tower just a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, I don't know if we need a new jail or not, if it's already obsolete based on what jail standards are today. Mm-hmm. One thing I was wondering about, too, is that the, the, the sheriff and his pushback to to uh, the response he got from uh, Commissioner DeBerry has been to say that that uh, suggesting that she's trying to privatize the jail. And mm-hmm. I, would, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on that, if you think that there's anything to that. And and if, if there if that was uh, her goal, I mean, what, what exactly would that mean in practical terms? No, I don't think that she's said that explicitly mm-hmm. but um remember that she she replaced kevin wolf who was a republican um on the court and he had the same kinds of uh, exchanges uh, heated with the sheriff mm-hmm. um and, and so he would sometimes suggest that apparently there was once once a time when the commissioners ran the jail i believe that was might have been in the 70s or 80s when the county mm-hmm. ran the jail and it wasn't fully under the sheriff's purview um and he's uh, kevin when he was in office would suggest that you know if i were the sheriff i would say you know hand it over to the commissioners and let them run it mm-hmm. but um i you know i don't know um if Trish is, is willing to go that direction and she's never explicitly said that it should be privatized, but once, once a, a sheriff hands it over to the County, uh, the County might decide, you know, we're not in the jail administration business. Maybe we should privatize it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, you know, if that's really the best route or not, um, you know, certainly don't you, don't you run the risk of compromising services and care um, for profit when you privatize, I, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, and and the level of oversight, I think that, that would be a concern. Uh, before that, you go, I have to ask you this, and I don't know if you have an answer for this, but um, when you mentioned the figures, you know, the, the sheriff's consultant uh, is what about fifty thousand or close to that. The, yeah. the the commissioners, their consultant is is like less than twenty thousand. What's the um, it sounds like the sheriff either got a bad deal on that, or or the or the commissioners, uh, they're really. They're, uh, they drive a better bargain. I mean, what's, it, it, do you have any idea why there was such a disparity in, in the, the costs for the, for the two consultants? Right. Yeah. Um, I don't, but, um, I, you know, it's hard to believe that they could get a, a product of much value for 20,000. Yeah. I mean, they have to, uh, you know, fly the guy over from Florida, first of all, you know, and, um, I just don't think that um, they would get a whole lot of value for that, but um, maybe he's really brilliant. And I don't believe that he's actually done any consulting for jails in Texas Um, in in the longer term. You know, I don't know um, if they're going to continue butting heads, if that's really in their best interest, because, um, you know, I know that a lot of folks feel that, um, you know, Commissioner DeBerry goes too far in criticizing the sheriff. And, you know, she's a Republican. At some point, she's going to be uh, seeking reelection, I suppose. And I don't know how well that sells with her base. But on the other hand, I've heard that uh, some people 
uh, feel like the sheriff is too dismissive of what the commissioner mm-hmm. is telling him. And mm-hmm. um, perhaps that it's because, uh, you know, she's a woman. So I don't know in the best interests of each of them, whether they, you know, butting heads like this is really the way forward. Yeah. Well, Scott, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us. And we really appreciate the insights you, you've given us uh, on, on what's going on there with the county. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's always interesting. I want to move on to uh, another big story last week, which was the announcement from Paula Gold Williams, the president and CEO of CPS Energy, that she will be stepping down soon uh, in early 2022. Um, obviously, the CPS Energy has had a lot of challenges in the last few months uh, since Winter Storm Uri. That they're not alone among utilities in Texas having challenges, but they've had some major problems. Um, and been subjected to a lot of criticism. They're looking at the need, or they're they're going to approach the the, uh, the city for a ten percent rate hike soon, um, which is going to be a very contentious issue. Um, Greg, you wrote about her and her situation probably about four months ago, and I think uh, when you posted last week on Twitter, I was glad because I thought you know you pretty much kind of saw this coming. You had kind of a crystal ball on this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was pretty clear that was back in June, and it was clearly pretty clear. With- this point that she probably wasn't going to make it through the end of the year. I mean, part of it was, uh, you know, I think as you've pointed out in in a couple of your columns, I mean, look, she was she and CPS faced unprecedented problems from uh, the winter storm in in February, and a lot of it had to do with the composition of the Texas power market. I mean, you know, the the rolling outages in San Antonio which didn't roll very far. They kind of just hung around and just yeah. you know, kept us in the dark for hours and days on end. Part of the problem. I mean, yeah, we'll just say super slow rolling power outages. Most of that had to do with uh, ERCOT and these you know, mandates coming down from the state level. However, uh, I mean, you know, there were clearly problems. You know, we had a number of uh, power plants under CPS control that went offline because they just weren't prepared for, you know, uh, very long-term freezes. There were miscommunications with saws that exacerbated the problems. There was poor communication between CPS Energy and its customers. And at the end of it, you had a lot of very raw, uh, very angry uh, ratepayers, and that just did not dissipate. Um, it's you know, and you, you you could talk to any city council member; they would consistently hear uh, from their constituents about you know that that week and what CPS did and what CPS didn't do. Uh, some of it, you know, some of the the critiques were fair; some were not. Um, but, you know, like there is a big component of Paula Gold Williams job, any CEO of CBS Energy that's political in nature. I mean, it is a city owned utility and, you know, politics and public reaction just consumed her, I think. Now, just one. Do, do, do you think that she would would have survived if they had not been the freeze or were there other things oh, yeah. already going on? Yeah, I mean, that's a remarkable thing about about this, uh, you know, before before the storm, I mean, I don't think anybody ever said uh, that Paula Gold Williams was a visionary CEO. Like she wasn't, she wasn't a transformational executive uh, for the utility. 
but she was she was more than competent. I mean, you know, she she managed finances and operations operations in such a way that they didn't have to go to city council uh, for a rate increase. The last time they did so was in 2013. The rate increase kicked in in 2014, and there's been nothing since then. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the city's population growth. Like that was, you know, they were always going to ask for a rate increase this year, even before, even before the winter storm and all of the, the charges that piled up from that. But I think she, man, you know, she managed it very well. Um, you know, the environmental uh, activists in town, uh, they, you know, they had a lot of complaints about her. They thought that, uh, you know, she lacked transparency. She didn't share enough information, particularly on uh, the spruce coal-fired plant. And, you know, how quickly and how much it would cost to, you know, take it offline to basically to decommission it ahead of schedule. Yet uh, CPS is clearly moving in the direction of more uh, clean energy. And I I don't know that activists are ever going to be happy with the CEO. (laughs) Well, and the thing, too, is that, that, uh, you know, the the spruce to to, uh, plant and also the South Texas uh, nuclear project. I mean, these were things that were really put in play well before she took over. Obviously, how oh, she's yeah, handled sure. criticism since she's been there uh, in charge, mm-hmm. you know, that's mm-hmm. that's fair. But but obviously, these were things that predated her and she kind of inherited all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right, absolutely. I mean, I would say, though, that, um, you know, a crisis really, it kind of, it, it sheds a lot of light on your, your skill as an executive, right? right. And I think... Um, you know, with the promotion of Fred Bonniewell to chief operating officer uh, back in June um, and kind of the outflow of a lot of, you know, fairly talented executives, um, you know, all of that speaks to her ability to, uh, you know, kind of maintain the integrity of the organization, like a, a really good CEO will ensure that, you know, that she's got a strong bench of senior executives. Um I don't think that happened here. Like, I think that is that that is one of Paula Gold Williams failing. So yeah. she's she's not done a really good job at nurturing and bringing up talent to the to the top level mm-hmm. of CPS energy. We're seeing that now. I mean, you know, this afternoon, uh, the uh, trustees of CPS energy will meet. They'll talk about, uh, you know, the executive search and, you know, maybe they will um name an interim CEO, um, or maybe they'll talk about the timing of that. But it's pretty clear to me that they don't have a lot of, like, there's no, there's no executive at CPS right now that is like an obvious favorite. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Carrie, I was, I was curious to get your thoughts, not only on who you would maybe, what type of person you'd like to see succeed her there, but also, you know, there are like two schools of thought on this this rate hike, which CPS Energy uh, and and Paul Gold Williams have have described as something that is like essential for their fiscal solvency going forward. And one school of thought is that now, um, with her leaving, it's gonna the trustees are going to be really uh, resistant, or, or they're going to question whether to, whether to go forward to this rate hike or approve it. Uh, another argument that I've heard is that city council members who might have been unwilling to to uh, give the rate hike to, to Paula Gold Williams, given everything that's happened in the last few months, uh, when with a new person in there, they they might be much more willing to do it. I mean, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the the politics of this rate hike, which has, has been talked about so much. I've heard the same thing you've heard, Gilbert, with regards to the latter. 
that uh, with her still there, it, it was more unlike, unlikely the mm-hmm. council would vote for the, for the rate increase. Uh, but maybe under new leadership, they would be. Now, whether or not that 10% will also be at that one, that one leap of 10% and maybe not phase in is another question, but I do think that uh, just because the optics of everything that Greg described, that it would have been difficult uh, mm-hmm. with, with all the issues going on to convince city council folks to vote for a 10% rate increase. I think, yeah, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, two um, CPS trustees told us last week that, look, given given the situation now, like they're not going to vote for a rate increase anytime soon. They didn't they didn't they didn't go so far as to say we're just going to wait for a new uh, new CEO, because who knows how long that could take? I mean, remember how long it took to replace Doyle Benneby? It was, it yeah. was a very long process. Almost a year. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Paulo, Paulo was the interim CEO in that time. I mean, or, you know, I, I think we would I think CPS as an institution would be in really serious trouble if they had to wait a year for a rating. <laughs> We're talking about some huge I mean, they've got huge bills. I mean, yeah. you know, they've got you know, they've already they've already said, OK, of the billion dollar billion dollars in expenses we racked up during the winter storm. Okay. About 425 million, I think somewhere in the ballpark. That's legitimate. We're contesting the rest in court. You don't know how it's going to play out in court. I mean, it could be that, you know, a whole billion dollars. dollars. Exactly. Wow. On top of that, you've got over a hundred million dollars in past due bills. That's also a huge deal. I mean, you know, CPS is in financial crisis right now. Aren't we also looking at like higher, higher costs for, for natural gas going forward? Come, you know, like, Going into next year and so. Oh yeah, I mean they've got. I mean higher costs are hitting CPS all around. I mean not only is is natural gas going to be more expensive than it had been before the storm, and this has nothing to do with the storm. This is a this is a global phenomenon. Right. But you've also got you know simple building materials. <laughs> Everything's going up. Like all of the yeah. all of, all of the stuff they use to you know make repairs at their power plants to put up power lines. It's all more expensive. Yeah. Well, the last thing I want to talk about is U.S. District 35, which um, is a seat that was created a decade ago uh, when we came out of the redistricting process and and new seats were added in Texas. And this was kind of an opportunity district for San Antonio. It's it's a a district that runs up the I-35 corridor from San Antonio up to Austin. And um, but there's a new opportunity for San Antonio to possibly have a representative there because for the last 10 years, we've had there's been an Austin Congressman uh, Lloyd Doggett, who is now moving to the newly created uh, District 37, which is really in his backyard. Um, there's been some tinkering with the with the map. And, you know, we don't know what lawsuits might uh, how that might affect things. But as of now, there's a slight plurality of votes in San Antonio. I mean, I, I think the, what I'm kind of hearing is people sort of think because uh, Hayes County voters might vote the way Austin voters uh, would. If you add up uh, Travis County and Hayes in a Democratic primary, uh, an Austin-based candidate uh, like uh, Greg uh, Kassar, who's uh, one of the Austin candidates uh, or potential candidates in this race, might have an advantage over San Antonio candidate. But <clears throat> we've got Trey Martinez-Fisher from San Antonio looking into this. Um, it is There is the potential for San Antonio um, having a, con- a, a new seat here. Um, Carrie, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because 
10 years ago, we almost had a, a battle for the ages. Uh, in, we had Joaquin Castro, state representative at the time, a rising star in Texas politics. He's planning to run in District 5 against Lloyd Doggett, the, the sort of old guard, Austin uh, liberal. And uh, they were, I mean, they the race was playing out for a while. And then uh, you had lawsuits and questions about the maps. And then Charlie Gonzalez stepped aside in U.S. District 20. Joaquin Castro moved there. And a collision was avoided. But um, you kind of had a close-up view of that. What, what, are, your, what are your recollections of, of that race? And what do you... What are you looking forward to this this time around? You, we could have had you actually. We could have had two big, two big races. What mm-hmm. the first one would have been would have been uh, Joaquin against uh, Castro against against Doggett, uh, which would have just torn apart uh, Bear County and Austin liberals and and, and Democrats because that's yeah. where it was headed. But but then uh, then the day the day after the day after uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, Charlie Gonzalez announced that he was resigning. We we're going to retire. Uh, he called Joaquin. And uh, I mean, that night we were at, at campaign headquarters and, and Joaquin and, and Julian and Christian Archer were, were calling all of the all of the, camp, the presumptive candidates who might have been interested in jumping in to, to run in District 20 and basically just saying, OK, I'm, I'm moving out of 35 and I'm going to go into 20. And because Joaquin already had a uh, full-fledged campaign with about three hundred thousand dollars in the bank, no one, no one got in. Yeah. But uh, if not for Joaquin already having a campaign going, you would have, you could have had maybe Leticia and Jose or about that. Carlos yeah. Uresti. Would have been the, the race that we, the race that we may see in thirty-five in this upcoming year. Uh, could reflect what we could have had in 2012, which you know, personally, I'm glad we didn't have in 2012. Now, the thing, the thing that 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 Doggett had to, and, and to his credit, Doggett, he, he had experience doing this because they were always gerrymandering him. So he'd have to, if he had to go down to the valley or whatever, wherever some other new area, he w- he was pretty yeah. good at uh, at working it and uh, and sort of building support in that in some community that he had no history in, and he did that in San Antonio, but. Um, what I wonder, so because of what happened, Joaquin Castro getting moving out of, of there, he did, Doggett didn't really have a, a fight. But this time it's, we are. And I think what I'm curious about is to get your take on, you know, if you're a San Antonio candidate, you've got to build bridges to Austin and and the, the communities in between that you might not have right now. If you're an Austin candidate, you got to do the reverse. Um, how do you do that? I mean, what's what kind of a challenge is that? I think it is. I think it would be a challenge. I mean, you, know, you go back again ten years. If 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 the thirty five race had, had continued because because Joaquin was had been in the state legislature, there was already that relationship with Austin, which is why also I think that you know someone like a you know Trey Martinez Fisher, uh, a Bear County, a member of the Bear County delegation who's already has has relationships in Austin would have an advantage over somebody who's not in the legislature right now. But it also, you know, you know, back in 2012, because it was it was just a two man race, would have been a two man race between Doggett and Castro. But now, because you don't have this formidable incumbent like like a Doggett, it does concern me that that uh, that Austin may have the advantage yeah. going into the 2022 election. 
Yeah, it's it, I think, uh, you know, if, if Trey Martinez, if it, if it comes down to a race between Trey Martinez Fisher and Greg Kassar in, in Austin, this seat, I think Trey would have to, you know, I, and I'm sure he would be planning to make inroads into Hayes and Travis County. Like he needs to do that. Uh, he needs to, you know, behave as Lloyd Doggett did. <laughs> you know, when, yeah. when we had this new map, I was covering it at the time for Plaza de Armas uh, you know, a news website at the time. And mm-hmm. every time I turned around, there was Lloyd Doggett. He was suddenly, he went from, you know, he, he suddenly went from being this, this guy whose name I had seen in a lot of news stories to there he is every day. It's like I memorized his face. Uh, that, you know, there's going to, Trey Martinez Fisher is going to have to do some of that. I mean, he's, yeah. he's not the retail politician that Lloyd Doggett is. Like, uh, Doggett is a master of that. He really is. Uh, he, I mean, you know, he's, he's very good at glad handing. He's very personable uh, with community leaders and constituents. He knows how to do it. And Trey's going to have to do some of that on the, on, you know, on the flip side, expect to see Greg Katsar hang out in downtown San Antonio, you know. And, that he, and he's really interesting too, because I mean, he's basically, I mean, he will already have some support. I mean, among, among the sort of, Bernie Sanders, uh, AOC, you know, the crowd who, who were really big, big fans of them. Yeah. I mean, he's already kind of a somewhat of a hero, you know, to uh, really progressive, particularly young Democrats. So Trey does what, you know, he, he could. I mean, he does have he'll have a little bit of advantage because of the whole. Um, you know, Democratic legislatures mm-hmm. you know, leaving the session and going to Washington and, and you know, right. you, you know, Trey, Trey got a lot of airtime on MSNBC yeah. and raise his name and profile to to a level that no one else getting into this race will probably have for what it's worth. Yeah, right. Yeah, man, that's going to be one, one to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll wrap things up there. Um, thanks, uh, Greg and, and, and Carrie, and thanks to Scott Ellison for joining us and uh, for everybody listening. Go Astros. Go Astros. <laughs> I knew we couldn't get out of this without yeah. a strip. <laughs> um, thanks for doing that, Gary. Um, so everybody listening, uh, take care, and we'll be back next week. Thanks. Thank you.